Hello, and welcome to Scholars at Play, a podcast dedicated to the critical discussion of games and their place in society and the Academy. My name is not Derek Price. I am Kyle Romero, and I have taken over the podcast. Derek and Terrell are tied up in the corner, and we're going to talk about history for the rest of the entire day. All we're going to talk about. All right. 1861. Oh, they broke out. No, they broke out. Okay. They're here. Okay. They got out. I guess. have to include us. (laughs) I guess we're going to have to have a normal episode of the day. Uh, I'll tell you what, Kyle, it can be history, and it can be your show, Okay, but we've got to be included. Okay, can I bring a friend? You can bring a friend. Okay, great. I brought a friend. Oh, Uh, look, you did. (laughs) So, welcome, Derek, to the podcast. Hello, here's Derek. Terrell. What's up? And And thanks, friend, for not helping us out while he was tying us (laughs) up. He was just sitting here laughing. Yeah, I think that's his friend, not our friend. (laughs) And my my very special friend and our guest for this episode, Henry Gorman. Henry? Oh, hi. Um, My name is Henry Gorman. I am a fifth-year PhD student in history at Vanderbilt. I study America's relationship with the Middle East in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I'm also a guy who has spent a lot of time playing and thinking about video games. Um, it was high like, time that he came on the podcast. It was. So, um, and I'm also, like, functionally, in a lot of ways, my my research interests and my, like, what I do for fun overlaps a lot with Kyle's. I'm just kind of like a handsomer version of He's him. Like basically. a handsomer and smarter <laughs> version of me. Yeah. That is 100% accurate. So, so, like, I, you better watch out. I'm like gunning for you. He's the, <laughs> he's the H&M V-neck to, to my Coles V-neck. V-neck. I've received a lot of flack for my use of Coles. Actually, I, I think it's nice. It is I affordable. Like it. it is quality make. I all, pretty much all everything that I'm wearing is apartment nine from Coles. This episode brought to you by Coles. <laughs> please, yeah. can you sponsor us? Can someone sponsor us, please? Blue Apron. Blue Apron. Squarespace. More on that coming now. <laughs> Okay, yeah, uh, Survey Monkey. We go through the same four. Audible, the same, the yeah. same four ones every Kim. time. Mail Ma- Mail Kim. Kim. Yeah. Um, okay, so like I mentioned, this is a, the barter that I made to free Derek and Terrell from their, um, where I tied them up in the corner of the Curb Center, is that we're going to talk about history for this episode again, uh, because I know all of you did not get enough from our previous Civilization episode. And indeed, if, we, if you go back and listen to it, I did say at one point, we should do another episode on this sometime. So that's it. And I've been given the power to host this episode, which, bad call, Derek, because it's already gone off the rails. I'll, ne- I'll never so get it So it's only going to proceed worse from here. Um, okay. So, I believe in you, Kyle. Thank- thanks, Derek. So <laughs> I'm not threatening him in any way. Um, <laughs> you are so capable. And yeah, you're doing a really good job. Good job. Good job. Yeah. No, fantastic. <laughs> So uh, today we're going to continue our discussion from our previous episode on civilization, um, but kind of through a different lens and with some different scholars to try to change up the conversation. Um, The game in particular we're going to be talking about today is Crusader Kings 2, which is made by Paradox Interactive. Um, They also make a bunch of other games. And I want to turn to Henry here to describe Paradox games for us because very true to their name, their form, and their name – uh, they are quite a paradox for all of us playing them, and you are kind of the master of them. Okay. So, so in two or three minutes, yeah. tell us what paradox games are. <laughs> so yeah, and how to how to beat them. Also, I, how to I still play, don't know how to how. play them as well. So, basically, like paradox are they're like a Swedish development house and publisher. The games that they create themselves are basically like mostly they're best known for historical four X games. So like that. And similar in some genre ways to games like Civilization, but um, with an odd sort of like kind of, they're in real time but slow. They have a kind of they tend to have like a, a sort of risk style map in the same way the Total War games do, 
and they're also known for being both sort of like more deliberately historical, but also more complicated than games like Civilization. Mm-hmm. And I'd say like in order of increasing complexity, there are <laughs> there's sort of like four major major like lines kind of. There's the Europa Universalis series, which focuses on um based on like what people call like the early modern period in history academy or um think about the Renaissance, Reformation yeah. and Enlightenment. As the or the age of the age of discovery, yeah. As the all these periodizations these, suggest, the yeah. game is the game probably catering to its audience expectations is kind of Eurocentric. Yeah. Um, then there's uh, Crusader Kings, which is about we're going to talk about it more today, but it's a it's a medieval game. It's all about dynastic politics. It's like the Game of Thronesiest aspects. It's about <laughs> incest, marriage, politics, um, murder, um, conquering the Holy Land. Yeah. All, <laughs> Deus Vault, all yeah. of these sorts of things are make, make an appearance. Um, then, like the, the one that's more complicated than that probably is Victoria Two, which is basically it's about the long nineteenth century. It's basically like if you took Lenin's theory of capitalist imperialism and turned it into a video game, <laughs> where the goal is to be the best capitalist imperialist you possibly can be, or if you have a revolution, the best communists. And that, um, and that's how you sell it to scholars of play. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. It's like. Class consciousness is a variable in the game. <laughs> um, they algorithmically coded then, like, that's, the, that's where you're wrong. So it's those games, <laughs> those three, I've spent like over 200 hours playing yeah. each of those. But um, the fourth game that the series is Hearts of Iron, which is a, basically a simulation of like the the sort of diplomatic maneuvering and actual wartime of World War II. And it is so complicated that <laughs> I like literally have no idea what's going on. I sometimes think that like it would be easier to be like like Dwight Eisenhower actually commanding the Allied armies <laughs> than it is to play this game because at least like Eisenhower could delegate it to like micro everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this probably speaks to the relative intellect of uh, myself to Henry, but I even find Europa Universalis bafflingly complicated. Yeah. So, and I don't want to speak for Terrell and Derek, but I think we share a kind of similar <laughs> yeah. confusion. I, I think, you know, Henry, we're happy to have you for many reasons, but one of them really is the amount of time you've spent with these games because, so we've, I think Terrell and I have spent some time with them. I actually, I spent about two hours trying to play uh, Crusader Kings 2. I was totally baffled. And then I watched a, uh, like a short, like a section of someone's Let's Play of this for about six hours over the course of a week and a half. That actually keyed me into like a few of the things as to how the game works. And then I came back to the game and like finally had like, oh, I think I'm starting to see how I might be able to do a few things with this. But like, you know, for those of you who are not familiar at all with 4X games or Paradox, uh, Paradox's specific brand of that sort of strategy, grand strategy kind of game, it is just menus on menus on menus. Yeah. There, are, a lot there of text, are like yes. a lot of reading. It's a lot of text. It's a lot of reading. There's, um, you mm. know, the events happen uh, in text. There's not like really simulations of battle so much. There's like a big map and then you've got a lot of menus. And that's kind of what you're working with yeah. the whole game. A friend of mine, a close friend of mine, described them as games for people who like spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I think that's accurate. Much like, like our future episode. Charged. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Much like our future episode of on Out of the Park Baseball. Oh my God, it's that it's will happening. be. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Great. Okay, so uh, I forgot. Ter- hold on, yeah. Terrell, Did you yeah. want to just chat at all about yeah, like, like your your CK two experience? I mean, like we're just sort of like bringing what we brought. Like, what do we have? Yeah, um, what I've got is uh, not a lot. Um, That's okay. I mean, like, I don't have much either. That's why we brought in the ringer. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. um, 
I think it's more just like about positioning, like where we're coming from, you know? Right. I, um, I guess there's a part of me that just wants to group a lot of these games, including the four X, um, along with paradox games, uh, to, um, thinking about them alongside things like real time strategy games. Mm -hmm. And to a certain degree, I mean, I think that's probably like the next step down maybe from this sort of genre to the, the real time strategy. And then from there, maybe to something like tactical RPGs. Yeah. And I think that, the general gradations are very interesting. I just, you know, if I can get my hands on something where I can engage on that level, what I, I find sort of interesting about them is that you can sort of stop and play them. Like, you know, Kyle, you've called um, Civ 4 a very sort of, or Civ 5 a kind of relaxing game for you yeah. where you're able to sort of do that. And that's intriguing. And, I, you know, there are some versions of RPGs I like about this. This was not a game um, <laughs> that um, I could spend the time similar to Civ unfortunately um yeah. learning how to play uh or even to be honest just you know get to that point it's it's been a not great semester thus far um we're so, busy that's, yeah. yeah that's that's Absolutely. not I, and I don't I don't say that to like shame you Terrell or anything <laughs> like that but like I think it's just like to position where we're coming from yeah. that it's some yeah. context for what we for what sure. we think and I do think like watching let's plays of this game is, helps a lot. is really helpful and actually like teaches you in a way that the in-game tutorial like never does. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I think a lot is obscured in the game. I, I put, I mean, I played Crusader Kings too, but I've put about thirty hours into Europa Universalis Four, and it. I think I understand it less than when <laughs> I started playing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, see, another thing about it is that because like that, people who really get into the games tend to play them for hundreds of hours. There's a, there's this. They're kind of managed like MMOs in some sense. Mm-hmm. So um, there's constant injections of new content, and there's frequent. And those frequently come with patch updates, change to the rules, efforts to rebalance stuff right. to stop yeah. broken strategies. These these sorts of things. Yeah, so the life uh, of the game. So the rules change underneath your feet. And yeah, so many of them. So like yeah. that. I, I I bought Crusader Kings two at launch, and it's very different now than it was yeah. when I first sure. started playing. Yeah. Um, great. So I, I do want to say I forgot a special guest that we've brought as well. Um, in fact probably the most important special guest that we've ever had. Uh, we're bringing them back. Uh, can you introduce yourself really quick? It's the gong! Beautiful. Everyone's Centered. so upset. Ready. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful. For those I of like you... the single ring. I don't love your tapping thing. That's yeah, well, less, too bad. I'm kidding. the host, so you're going to have to deal have that, with it. I don't have that power to um, stop him. I but... forgot what episode we, we we did the gong. It was for the, I think it was Game of the Year. It was Year. Game of the Year. Yeah, okay, and the then year. the gong yeah. disappeared. It did disappear. But luckily, we've brought it back we to our home. It. it actually it came, came back. back. It came, it came back it fa- to us. It found its way back. It did. Uh, so I will use the gong to demarcate whatever I feel like. Um, okay. So next I, I want to talk, I should have said this at the beginning, and it'll be in our show notes, but the text that we're going to be using for today. So basically, um, we're going to bring back some of the texts that we talked about for that last Civilization game. So that's um, Alexander Galloway's, um, what's the name of the essay? Gaming the, Essays on Algorithmic Culture. The yeah. specific essay is um, something as allegory. Allegories of Control. Yeah. Um, and the new stuff we're going to be bringing in is are two articles by this guy named Adam Chapman, who um, I think in the field of historical game studies um, could rightly be referred to as like a pioneer um, and probably one of the first um, historians to go into game studies and try to offer like a coherent synthesis of like what is historical game studies. Um, that he, I think he, he's doing uh, – he has several articles out, and I think his book just came out two years ago um, – which I think is digital games as history. We should have this all. Um, but basically, yeah. he, he's trying to articulate like the start of a field, you know, and trying to bring what historians 
know and do into studies of gaming, and in particular for him, like historical games. So the two articles in particular are um, in the order we'll talk about them. Uh, the first is called Is Sid Meier's Civilization History uh, in Rethinking History? Um, and the second article is Privileging Form Over Content, Analyzing Historical Video Games. And I think these two articles uh, are a good kind of cross-section of his work. And in the two articles show the first one, basically what his argument about video games are and our, vid our video games history. Yes. Uh, <laughs> spoilers. Spoilers. And the second one is, okay, now that we, ex if we accept that video games are history, how do we analyze them, right? Um, as good, you know, game studies, histor historians, like the interdisciplinary people that we are, how do we do that? So, um, yeah, we're going to work through those two articles and kind of intersperse our experiences with Crusader Kings, Europe Universalis, Civilization, um, 4X games uh, throughout. So that's kind of the plan uh, for the episode. So let's get into it. We're going to talk about is Sid Meier's civilization history? And I want to start by reading the opening sentence of this article because it is so insanely packed with information. <laughs> uh, there are four footnotes in one sentence, um, all of which link to like 500 word footnotes and not like like uh, footnotes with books, like footnotes with like arguments and like descriptions in it. So really the opening sentence is like four paragraphs worth of information that I think tell us a lot about uh, what Chapman's trying to do. Uh, here, is, here is the opening sentence. Quote, historical video games emergently construct the past as history by presenting players with experiential narratives. In such narratives, the audience's role in its creation is not subsumed because it is in fact the point. This is a new form of often immersive history. So, that's a lot of information. I had to read that eight times before I even had any clue yeah. <laughs> what was going on. So I think it would help if we broke that down uh, sentence by sentence. So the first sentence is, historical video games emergently construct the past as history by presenting players with experiential narratives. So uh, Derek and Terrell, I want to toss this to you. What does that mean? <laughs> Let me just set you up. Uh, go. Uh, no, no, I, I actually, I think this is really interesting. So you, um, like the first, one of the things I noticed most about Chapman's approach across these two articles, and um, I, I don't know exactly where he's at in 2018 with this whole thing, but like he insists on, um, he insists on thinking about game form, like the form of the medium, uh, and we'll get into like how that specifically plays out in this article, but like he really is drawing heavily on that ludology narratology tradition. Where in the other article that we'll talk on, he's sort of taking a side more in that, I feel like, on that on that sort of spectrum. Whereas in this one, he's like, we need to look at both the content and the form of his of of representations of history in order to do them justice as scholars, right? So like part of this first sentence where it's talking about like video games, what are video games, um, that form, content, ludology, narratology thing is really important to his approach. So yeah. that's one thing. Yeah. So, Terrell, when he says, like, historical video games emergently constructing the past as history, what, is that, what does that mean? <laughs> I, just, I just want smart people to explain this to me. <laughs> oh, man, this is tricky. That word with hyphens, past as history. Yeah. So... I, um, these are a train wreck of the first three sentences to start an article. <laughs> I really, I actually don't like them either. And, and, but, you know, we just have to call that and point this to the elephant in the room because to understand something, 
this was published in Rethinking History. And those footnotes are there because he's afraid. <laughs> oh. But but the fear that I think these sentences embody and the fear that I think causes the long footnotes. I mean, who I think those footnotes were done, four of them were within the first sentence mm-hmm. on those yeah. words. Yes. Mm-hmm is part because I think he he wants to to shove a bunch of stuff that I think matters for this conversation but matters to people who are who care about the video games and not the history away somewhere, right? So that past is history thing. I'm wondering if that means something to historians that it doesn't necessarily register to others. The emergent piece I think is particularly important because it starts to allude to concepts that we've talked about in earlier episodes, like emergent gameplay, or if nothing else, the idea that a narrative through history can, or a narrative of history can emerge through gameplay or emerge through a game absent having been written prior. That it's not happening when the developers are sort of doing the things with the yeah. codes prior to, it happens when the player engages. And I think that's a critical piece to his argument and a critical place where he's starting to push back against Galloway later down the road. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. To be like, you know, not sure if charitable is the right word, but <laughs> um, I think in, in fairness to Chapman, like I'm not sure if it's fear of, of, of putting the stuff into the footnotes as much as like situating the argument right at the beginning so that then like, and for all those people, yeah, like game studies, people who are like, well, what exactly is he talking about? They can go there to the end. But if someone is new to this field or is trying to like figure out is it is in my civilization history they don't have to be bogged down by like five pages of like okay here's what history is here's what a video game is here's what emergent uh mm-hmm. interaction is yeah I, I actually think that might be a good place to i think that the as both trell and derek have pointed out i think that the the concept of the, the past as history it's an important idea to unpack here and i think it might be good for us to to talk as historians about where the analytic sort of difference between history in general and the past yeah. strikes. Do you want to begin? Um, yeah, so I think this is something and that Chapman summarizes pretty well, but that I think is kind of hard to get at if you're not a historian because it's kind of part of our discipline that is taught. And so I think, some. I'm sorry to reveal this to all of you, but history is not an objective recapturing of the past what? that existed. What? 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 Sorry. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> Kyle, no. <laughs> sorry. It, you know, uh, in all senses, history and what historians do is producing narratives out of, like, evidence, right? And never are we going to fully recapture all the nuances and possibilities of the past just by looking at documents and looking at books and film and stuff like that, right? Can I can I suggest it like a, uh, what's the word a proposition or something like that? Okay, the past was the event, and mm-hmm. the history is the narrative we construct about. Yes, it. yes. I think that you could say like the the past is the territory, history is the map that we try to make of okay, it. Okay, yeah. cool. I, I like that better. I, I think that um, there's actually a, a really a fantastic essay by a f- historian philosopher of history named R. G. Collingwood, yeah. where he attempts to sort of define or explain what history is. And Collingwood begins by, uh, I think he says that history is um, fundamentally an act of imagination. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that the historian is trying to construct a 
a narrative about what happened in the past, which is fundamentally imagined, but which is consistent with and fits with the available documentary or archaeological evidence. So the idea is that in the same way that, say, if you're a, like a prosecutor and you're trying to convict someone of a crime, you're try, you try to explain sort of a story about what they did, which is convincing and which is consistent with all the evidence that you present. So like that, I think that Colin would say that, would say that history is a forensic discipline in the same way that law is yeah. as it's practiced in courts. Yeah, and so for a little kind of insider baseball about the historical community, uh, this was a, a really big debate among historians in the 60s and 70s in particular. Um, and as with most really big intellectual innovations, postmodernism came to history like 15 years after it came to everybody else. And so when it came to history, you finally had historians like really rigorously questioning the ability to reproduce the past faithfully, you know, or like with mm -hmm. complete accuracy. And this led to a lot of disagreements, a lot of uh, anger and debates within departments. And it's generally um, in among historians called the cultural turn, right? Which is where historians started to employ like postmodern techniques of, an of analysis, turning away from like uh, the more traditional modes of representing history in order to use like new gendered analysis, analysis, analyses of race, um, which in some ways work outside of like what was traditionally cast as history. Right. Yeah. And I would say that roughly now, like most historians are still empiricists, but we're empiricists in a, the loose sense of we want um, what we say to be consistent with a set of evidence of the world rather than in the sense of we can describe the world absolutely using the evidence we have. Yeah. And so Chapman, in one of his voluminous footnotes, uh, de defines history, uh, his working definition of history as, uh, quote, the practice of weaving a narrative representation with the intention of producing meaning about the past, which I think is, is a pretty good thing. And, and I think this kind of forms the crux of Chapman's argument is that a lot of people assume that historians are just like telling us about the past. It's a fact, right? I can't tell you the number of times I've heard like, oh, history's so great. You can just learn all the facts about the past and that'll inform the future. And I'm like, oof, like, where do I begin? Like, yeah. where, where do I begin with yeah. my <laughs> yeah. disciplinary field? And so really what we're producing are narratives that give meaning about the past and certainly can inform things about the present, but are, are, are one, fundamentally like imaginative based on, you know, an, an existing body of evidence, but in, in no way are like an actual recreation of past events, right? And are always kind of going to be formed in the context of the author, in the context of the culture that you're writing in. That's, that's just a truth that we have to admit. Mm -hmm. So a quick question about that, yep. just because, you know, forgive me, not a lot of sleep and a number of other <laughs> things going on right now. That distinction between we find the truth of the past to inform the future versus constructing an account of the past based off various um, pieces of evidence that we have, and it's always sort of imaginative, it's always something constructed, it's always something fabricated to some degree. What's the weight, what is the significance of maybe pedagogically is the best way to, to think through this. What is the significance of that diff distinction for, you know, student walk in and mm. say, you know, I think we're getting to the truth of something and that has value versus the practice and the account that we've just sort of described. Like what's the, what is the weight of that distinction? Yeah. I think it's an excellent question. I think it's, it's really tough in pedagogically as someone who has, I haven't taught very much, but I ran right into that when I started teaching because 
it's so easy to just like rely when you're teaching on like, this is an objective reality that happened in the past. God, you know, just learn about the Civil War, right. you know? <laughs> um, but I think what really like, you know, this is going to sound trite, but like we're in an era of like fake news, right? An era of where bias is everywhere and we're becoming mm -hmm. more and more critically aware of it. And I think there is something to showing people that the way his, like the past has been recounted changes over time, right? And it shows that people can shape the narratives of what the past represents. And so the way that I uh, taught one of my courses here was I started with how have historians thought about the United States over the past 100 years, right? And so in the 1920s, here's how they thought history happened. And then in the 1950s, this happens. In the 1970s, this happens. And so just showing that all of our thinking is always shaped by like the context that we're in and that it changes over time, as well as things change over time. So, so you kind can, of raising the question of maybe I'm using this word correctly, historiography? Yeah, yeah. So like you show the historiography, which is historians writing about history. Um, like what historians have written is called historiography, getting super insider baseball. This is good. No, this is really uh, good. History this writing. is awesome. Yeah, it's the <laughs> best. It history is the best, right? Yeah, so yeah. the history, history. Um, so if, by showing students historiography in addition to history, I think it can like give them potential openings into thinking more critically about like news sources in the present or like what their own concept of history had been and like how they can and what were like the basis for that. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's also like getting people to think of history as a critical discipline rather than a story time. Yeah. It's like that you you are in some sense, it's still about telling a story in some sense. There's still a narrative component, but it's one that there's always a case of it's evidence plus interpretation. There isn't a, and there's some things we kind of talk about as if they're sort of established facts, but I think that's partly because like a narrative that wouldn't include them would be so bizarre and implausible that it would be hard to reconcile with the evidence. Yeah. And, and to sort of, bring us back to Chapman's article a little bit. Um, I think I think that the question of like how, through what means do we get people to think about history in this way is like one of the things that Chapman's very concerned with. Yeah. Uh, and, and so in this article and then also the other one we'll talk about, he, he sort of talks about how, I don't know, this is a common... Um, this is a common thing you see in media studies and game studies and other sorts of newer fields where it's like the book is the thing in every discipline and everyone just thinks about the book and we want to make space for film. We want to make space for, uh, you know, for video games. I mean, that's uh, what Chapman's really concerned with. And um, to get us, to, you know, to get us to the impetus that I think Chapman in this article wants to do several things, but one of them, I think, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to, I, I feel like there's something deep underneath this article driving it forward and i want to say that there's definitely if it's not anger it's a, a little distaste. bit of power there's yeah. a little bit of like all right hold on and that <laughs> all right hold on is directed at alexander galloway yes um so i think uh on page 314 of this uh of this article this is early in the beginning he sort of quotes galloway uh galloway's talking about civilization three in that in the book that we've talked about the the article we mentioned and um, Galloway says that um, basically that games can't be history. That's the that's the that's the summation of it. But um, Galloway's sort of thinking through his uh, he's reflecting on his experience with Civ three. I'll let me do a quick detour yes. through Galloway himself. Mm -hmm. He he starts this chapter out by thinking about um, 
how do we think about the meaning of games? Which is like, again, I think Chapman's really interested in how do we how do we think about the meaning of games? How do games produce meaning? And Galloway sort of takes us through this like, well, we could start by thinking about them as ideological. And I think this is a, a form of criticism uh, that that he obviously positions as like having a long history, right? We've got a criticisms of, of literature, of written text, and especially of film is his uh, most immediate reference, um, where we sort of look and see how how does this media object um, implicitly or even explicitly embody a, a form of logocentrism or a form of Eurocentrism or a form of white supremacy or a form of, uh, you know, how is it overdetermined by a certain, uh, uh, by patriarchy or something like that, right? And so, um, and then he sort of goes through a little bit of Civ 3s like, well, you know, we find out that this race ha- is hardworking but not... Uh, organized or something like that, right? He sort of goes through that and shows how you could do an ideological critique of these games. And then the next step he does is introduce this informatic critique, which he, which which Galloway asserts is the more, is the thing that wins out the longer you play. Um, and, and informatic critique is really essentially that like games have the logic of what he calls protocol. He has this, this protocol logic and this is the the protocol logic is the logic of the computer. It's everything is in discrete pieces. Um, you access things through menus. Things are attributes. Things are variables um, that can be changed, and you can make versions of them. He's drawing on uh, Manovich and the language of new media a lot. He asserts his own kind of stuff as well. But um, for Galloway, Galloway's ultimate conclusion is that like it's not really the ideology. It's not really that Civ Three is all about a Eurocentric view of history, like we might say. In the 20s, they had a certain, they had X kind of ideology about history. His, Galloway tries to argue and, and really puts his foot in it, I think, uh, uh, saying there's no history here. There's no ideology here. There's only control. There's only that form of power that happens through information. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll read this quote, which I believe, which, which uh, Chapman cites and which is clearly, I think, illuminating and driving forward the whole thing. So Galloway says that the more one begins to think that civilization is about a certain ideological interpretation of history, neoconservative, reactionary, or what have you, or even that it creates a computer-generated history effect, the more one realizes that it is about the absence of history altogether, or rather the transcoding of history into specific mathematical models, dot, dot, dot. History in civilization is precisely the opposite of history. Yeah. So this is kind of the core that Chapman is is, is uh, arguing against in his article because he takes that part from Galloway, right? Where, where Galloway kind of so firmly states that civilization three in this case is not a faithful representation of history in any way. And basically says, uh, I, I don't think you know what history is, <laughs> is his response. Um, so there's a few kind of, uh, ways he goes about doing this. Um, Chapman argues that historical games produce experiences And if you believe in the definition of history, as Henry and I just kind of laid out, there's not much difference then, right? In producing a like a meaning making map onto history, a game that produces experiences and discourses about the past is not much different than a book. And so Chapman kind of proves this in in his article through several ways. The first is uh, what he calls the audience recognition of Civ as history. Uh, where he says, you know, this is a game that's been proven to be useful in history classes. Um, The modding community is, like, very active. It, like, promotes what he calls historical fidelity, which is, like, 
a very contentious thing, but that people are engaging with history more in order to mod the game. Um, and that general history knowledge actually helps with playing the game. So that if you have a knowledge of history um, or a knowledge of the past, uh, it helps you playing Civ. So basically that he concludes in a quote on page 318, what is clear is that the intertextual historical understanding and enthusiasm with which civilization is greeted with by these students and fans indicates that for these players, civilization is history because it is a text that allows playful engagement with, connects to, and produces discourse about the past. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is he basically says the video game as history, right? Where um, it basically, like, if we're going to accept that history is a, like, a narrative-making project, then playing with historical games is a historical project, right? Um, the creators of video games you could liken to authors of books, right? They're mobilizing certain pieces of evidence. They're using arguments, using discourse to produce a something. Um, maybe the goal of that something is not education as much as like enjoyment, but it's still a product, right? A, a product of looking to the past and trying to produce a um, experience from it. Um, so those are kind of the two cores of his argument. Do you guys have any thoughts on those? My, my first question is actually just one that I want to pose to everyone, mm -hmm. which is that like, and this, maybe we already touched on this, but um, what are the stakes of a historical narrative and how are they different than a, let's say, fictional narrative? Or is there a difference between the two? In history, how do you think of this? Again, we touched on this a lot already, but I think it's worth explicitly going over this because I think the question of whether or not there's there's more of an ethical burden on a historical narrative or not is kind of crucial to, not to his argument, but to what I think we need to think about in terms of how do we evaluate Chapman's argument and how do we decide between that and like saying, no, it isn't history or yes, it is history. I, I, I don't know if that spikes sparks anything, but. Well, I think that um, I can think of two possible criteria that might be useful. One is that I think that we'd expect historical narratives to be consistent with available forms of evidence about the past insofar as possible. So they may not be sort of specifically truthful in part because the actual full truth of the past is unknowable. Yeah. But, and like interpretive. Yes, but at the same time, they should be attempt to faithfully represent what we have. Um, so the second piece might be it's related to that is that a sort of historical narrative might be something that helps the reader understand something about the world or about how the about the past and how it works. So it's like that they will it'll help them become more familiar with things that you can conclude from the available evidence and it'll help them perhaps understand the world more than they would have before they engaged with it. Okay, so actually your second part there sort of already starts to answer what I wanted to pose back, which is that um, what do we make of these... Okay, let's say that gameplay, the games are history. And like I, I'm more... I, I, we, we should talk about like is the game history or is my playing of it, my playthrough, the history. I'm, I'm inclined to go to the latter, that it's like... I think that's the case. What, yeah. I think Chapman would yeah. agree with that. I think yeah. Galloway, would, I mean, he doesn't think it... Maybe he doesn't think it's history. I think but. that's where Galloway can begin to push back, but continue. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, like, um, uh, if, if the history is in the play, what kind of... Like, I, I guess I want to push... Like, Chapman wants to make games are history, 
video games as history. But what happens when they're not consonant with the archive, right? Or like when they're not consonant with the evidence available. I, I you know, I, I think it's, it's a well-taken point that like we can play games alongside a book and that they will reinforce each other. But I think Chapman at certain times wants to say games are history just like books. And how do we deal, I, I guess, how do you feel about that idea that like, well, it, the second one, it might help us understand it more, but it might not be consonant. Well, I actually, I actually agree with Chapman that I think that games are history in, in some broad sense, but I would actually disagree with them being the same kind of history that something like a book is, because I think that like a book often tries to convey what happened. And I think there's often discussion of possibility or contingency in some sense, but I think that in a game like Civilization or say like the, par- the paradox games that we'll be discussing a bit, like Crusader Kings, the player has a lot of possibility to take um, take the world in a manifestly not historical direction. Like that you can, like say like that in Crusader Kings 2, like the the sort of like the Umayyad Caliph can conquer Europe. This is a thing that can happen. But um, the I think that games are often about trying to explore the space of historical possibility that existed within a particular moment in time. So it's not just about, um, it's not about representing the past straightforwardly, but representing all of those sort of space of possibility and contingency that existed at a particular moment in in the past. Yeah. And so maybe that video games versus books versus film versus, you know, novels, whatever, they're all doing, there all are spaces to articulate different things, but that there is not one that is inherently going to offer like something that is more pure or more proper. I think he, uh, Chapman uses the term proper history as like an idea in Galloway's head that like, oh, okay, well, there is a thing that exists that is proper history, which is never defined, which probably just means books, right, or academic literature, um, but that we need to kind of move away from the idea that there is a proper way to like give narratives, right? The reason I, I love I love both your answers because I love you. I, wow, <laughs> gosh, that was really tender. Can we get a gong? Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, oh I don't. I feel like the question's not even as yeah, good. Yeah, let's as just that. end, guys. Yeah, okay, we're done. <laughs> well, I, I guess I don't. It, the reason I like your answer is because it goes slightly different from Chapman, where I think Chapman's really committed to. I think he says this explicitly: proving that video games are mimetic, that they are representational, and maybe there's. You know, I don't want to. I don't have the quotes right here. It may be that he's there's more wiggle room in his in his argument than this, but like I love the idea of what the thing that it represents is possibility, the yeah. possibility space of history. But I think mm-hmm. what Chapman is saying or leaning towards is that like, no, it's representational. And because of postmodernism, that's fine. Like yeah. we, because mm-hmm. there's no one history, the history you make through the game is should be, you know, considered as a source, but also critically approached as well, yeah. as much as any other source. And I like yeah. your possibility space argument more than I like Chapman's sort of like hardcore, like we gotta, ha- it, it is mimesis, it is real history. Yeah, know? I think, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, there is a quote that I maybe speaks this a little bit on page 322 where Chapman writes, uh, the historical video game, whilst not echoing the specificity, linearity, and claims of its literary counterparts is still a history. So I think there's some recognition of that, where he's basically saying that like, okay, a video game isn't gonna give you a linear narrative of like, how did Andrew Jackson 
you know, remove like like order the Cherokee removal, right? Like that's not something that's really going to happen in most video games or the specifics of like this event happened in 1867 or this event happened in 1899 um, as you would find in a book. But it can still offer something kind of unique and uh, useful in like historical thinking, like Henry's been talking about the possibilities, Absolutely. you know, um, the potential for difference, contingency, the possibility of agency, representing change over time, these kind yeah. of big fundamental ideas in uh, uh, scholarly history work can be shown maybe better in a video game than in like a book. So I think that that's um, the place where um, Galloway? No, nah, Chapman oh. actually I think resonated the most with me was that part of what can happen or part of what takes place in the process of play of a historical game and I guess the thing that's just the clearest in my mind right now just in preparation for an event that Derek and I will be leading on Thursday um, over at the Digital Humanity Center at uh, Vanderbilt it, it will be although it of will course be in the past. it would already have happened yeah it's yes. gonna have already happened <laughs> like oh, the past wow. as history yeah or like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, we're writing a preemptive history of this event <laughs> sure yeah can we get into like post Writing like 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 writing about something before it's happened, but then you'll be hearing it after it's happened. Ugh, I am sleepy. Whoa, <laughs> sorry, sorry, <Trump. laughs> no, yeah. it's, it's fine. Um, <laughs> in thinking through Mafia Three and the way that Mafia Three um, has a mechanic that um, puts a display on the screen when there are police officers within the vicinity. And then that sort of kind of gives the player a sense of, oh, this is something that is going on. And that's a very different thing than I think most um, most open world games of that variety, Grand Theft Auto, et cetera, have done in the past. But given its historical context, that's a thing that it tries to represent or you know something that it tries to indicate within the game space. It's less so much that that was actually a thing that happened than it is a way of putting pressure on the player's engagement with the game to demonstrate the sense that that created and the possibilities that there follow, right? Or the lack of possibilities, right? Or like this restrictions. Limitations. Right? Well, no. No? Okay. No, oh. because, you know, it's not so much that it cuts off possibilities. I mean, yeah, that would be a very easy reading and that would okay. be the historical reading proper, mm -hmm. right? But as a matter of fact, and given the fact that the game does deal things like the Black Panthers, it means that carrying your weapon around certain areas means that, oh, this is what is happening to you, and that is what's likely going through your mind as it's going on, right? Yeah. Like, it, I, I don't think that it so much cuts those things off so much as demonstrates to the player, oh, this is the terrain in which you are working with. And I think what Chapman wants to put on the table is that all of what we would want to call the narrative or the imagery of the game, the things that are not quote unquote mechanical, that are not the sort of gameplay elements, all of that goes to enforce or sort of demonstrate or push you in the direction of, oh, this is that particular thing. These are, you know, all the things that are, you know, implicating and demonstrating this is a historical moment. I should play that historical role. I think that Galloway's ultimate argument is yes. But if we're attending to the mechanics as the text of the game proper, there's nothing stopping you from seeing those things and saying, oh, those are the things I need to now kill. And a playthrough of the game 
as a possibility of, oh, every time there's a blue arrow indicating there is a police officer, that is the target of the thing that I want to kill. Mm -hmm. And that that impetus and that way of moving through the game is what permits there to be an argument such that that's not historical because that's not a thing that has any Mm -hmm. within the things that it's representing historical moment. Right, yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, there still are, that's a very good example, but in, you know, another example would be in something in like Civ, I think there are other possibilities for like gameplay that is not defined by the mechanics, you know, or for like you've said before, like emergent gameplay that was not intended for designed by the mechanics. Um, I'm blanking on a specific example right now. But I, I, I have great. I have examples. Thanks, Derek. Before we, before we, before I go to them, I want to drop one last thing because I, I just like, I, I can't let this one go for Chapman. And and so like to to quick bring us back to this idea of representation and mimesis and like his you know his insistence on um Chapman at a certain point later in the article he wants to sort of show how all the elements of narrative when writing history are present in the game. They're all there and they're he he argues and this I'm going to quote him here <clears throat> the fact that in the video game uh the transcendence of data into the realm of moral argument metaphor is done through algorithm algorithm uh, instead of words is i would argue of little consequence in terms of hindering mimesis so his point there is that like again he's, he's trying to prove that these are historical documents that we can use them as history um that they are history and wants to like sidestep the formal qualities of the medium in that moment and i, I just like i have to put him on blast for that and and the like as as one as an example as an example of like how it might be different i think that like a lot of people who have done like media studies work and like writing about network society and information society and like trying to think that problematic periodization of like something past 45 like whatever that might be um have paid a lot of attention to how time and temporality have changed for us and i think games actually embody this problem of time and causality in a really interesting way. So I have a quote, um, and this is from the foreword to a book called 24-7, Time and Temporality in the Network Society. Um, It's by a a scholar uh, named Barbara Adam. uh, And I'm just going to read this quote, which is just about time and causality in network society. I think it translates right into games. So uh, she writes, "With with instantaneity, which means processes without a gap between cause and effect in the linear chain of events, there can be no interception, no intervening action. With simultaneity, which means action that is happening at the same time and is dispersed across space, there can be no certainty over effects. That is to say, when there is no durational gap for establishing difference and change, when there is no discernible sequence, and when the speeds involved operate outside the capacity of, consci- of the conscious mind, then the control achieved over say, the clock time is this old paradigm, clock time, Process, uh, pro- clock time processes is rendered inoperable. So the, the reason I bring this quote in is to sort of suggest that the fact that games are products of a computer, that you, use, you play them on some sort of computer, that they make use of, of an algorithmic logic, um, sh- changes the way that causality and time work. So I think one example in CK2 is like pausing time or speeding it up. Um, that allows you to create bigger or smaller gaps between cause and effect that you can't actually do in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it like it allows you to see cause and effect where there might not be one in like other forms of, 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 uh, of media. And it also allows you to sort of erase 
the sense of a cause and effect between two. It's like, oh, I, I have this menu, some event has happened, I will click and I will get a result right away. And I won't know why it happened in there. And because I, ha I wanna keep playing, I have it set to speed up very quickly. Um, I'm going to I'm going to miss any sense of why something might have happened. So that's just like this is totally a sidebar and totally me like doing my sort of media studies thing. But like I I, I want to push back on Chapman's idea that the um, that we just because all of the elements of narrative might be in video games that we can find things that do match up that that means that it's the same as the written word. I, yeah. I think that's. That's so the form is different. I think it's it's right. a kind of tough balancing act that he's doing it here, is. which, yeah. you know, I mean, at some point, you know, you kind of have to be doing, um, sure, sure. especially when you're trying to kind of lay out like the disciplinary boundaries of a field. But yeah, so that balance between, on the one hand, saying that, okay, video games are not this wholly different thing, right? They're not this, they're not the moon. They're not, you know, doing something that's totally, totally different from proper history or whatever and i think that's very in line uh so there's that and on the other hand saying also but yeah you know they are different in some substantive ways like they do different things and accomplish different things might have different goals uh but i think there is still that the possibility in games to become something equivalent to history right and I, I, think, I super agree yeah. my my bone is really just like to pick with this you know he he, like, I mean, I think he takes up Galloway with, like, oh, Galloway, you said there's no such thing as history in games. This is my version of that in his article, yeah. basically. Like, I, I could, you know, formulate more of it, but I, I just think it's my, my only thing would be to – the reason I bring it up is because I think it's important to consider – it's important to consider form, which he insists. Yes. And then to, like, really think, like, what are the formal qualities of this medium? And yep. that is the, the, the weirdness of time and the weirdness of cause and effect where, like, the process is just, like – taken away by the algorithm and then something happens and I don't know why that really matters for how we think about time and causality yeah and I think mm. that's definitely the case in Crusader Kings 2 but I'm not sure if that's definitely the case with video games yes I, I think that's that absolutely right yeah like I mean compare something you know like in the, in the genre of like film right like you can go from Bad Boys 2 which I was thinking of because <laughs> Alexander Galloway talks about that to like Ken Burns is the Civil War right mm -hmm. both are you know film reproductions of something and are making arguments about something but they are both yeah. sharing some fundamental qualities yet one is giving like a representation of the past one is talking is, is the greatest movie ever made <laughs> um, you, I, you decide which I one still is agree. which <laughs> um, yeah and so, and so I think the the keeping open that breadth of possibility and not like immediately saying like okay well games are algorithmic and re and remove you know um the logics of uh, possibility from people and don't re accurately reflect anything mm -hmm. but so leaving that possibility open in the future for games that to present different growing uh, uh versions or narratives about the past that mobilize different pieces of evidence or use different mm -hmm. um arguments or ideologies just yeah. just be, and the reason I bring it up is only because I think that when we think about specific games, we'll find some that are actually giving us a sense of cause and effect, and there'll be other ones where we're like we're not really sure why yeah. it's happened. And I think it's it's mm -hmm. it's not so much like this. My my point there counts for like all games have this are slave to this logic, which is kind of a little bit what Galloway is suggesting yeah. is that like informatics dominates all other things. But rather that we have to be attentive to every game and say, well, to what extent is it being determined by this, by its menus, by its yeah. informational logics? And to what extent does some sort of representation, some sort of mimesis actually come back or like override well, that? I think that also like 
I think that what's weird is Galloway's argument kind of proves too much, frankly, because <laughs> yeah. like that. Okay, so like it's determined by its informational logics. So is like reading a fucking book. Like it's just like <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, a yeah. book is like a text that follows specific rules. It conveys information in a specific sort of way. Yep. There's only a certain kind of way that we can attribute to it. To it. Mm-hmm. But in the same sense that like, I don't think that Galloway would say that a book can't convey history in some sense. So that there's sort of like, and I don't think that um. I think that, but I think that if you take Galloway's argument seriously, it would actually prove that a book can't convey history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think the line between the algorithm and something like the book is that the book, the sort of logic by which a book functions is something that we come to prior, right? Like read from right to left, turn the page when you're done, and then once you've completed it, that's sort of it, right? That getting sort of to the level of algorithm within a book gets into the level of interpretation, right? Where it's like, huh, I'm going to read this thing as the most significant piece as opposed to that. Whereas with the algorithm, right, you know, you say, you know, starting a racing game and everyone starts, you know, when the light goes green, everyone presses that. What if you were to go in reverse the minute the light went green, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that is the thing, and that sort of possibilities and all those things that are already captured within the code is what makes that. And that's, like, that's what Arsith is really trying to lay out in the cyber text, Mm -hmm. text that we read a very short passage of, is that, like, because you, because it's a cyber text and not a hypertext, because you are actually, like, struggling to actually see all of the thing. It's not so much that, like, we have the book, we all the words are in there, and po- postmodernism lets us sort of recombine it in various ways. It's that, like, we don't even necessarily have every page, right, if we want to make that metaphor. like, yeah. And we have to, like, struggle to get to certain pages. Or we just might not ever see certain pages, right? And that, that's just part of yeah. the experience of playing games. I would say that some books on critical theory I've read feel that way. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, I clearly, I was like, I'm I clearly probably never going to see every page. <laughs> I clearly missed something here because he's talking about something else already. <laughs> uh, I think this is a good time to transition to our next article. Hey, everyone. Derek here. Um, thanks for listening to part one of Revisiting the Past, the Paradox of History. Um, we're going to continue in part two, talking a little bit about Adam Chapman's work, and then we're going to finally get into Crusader Kings 2, some other Paradox games, and we also touch back on, uh, wrap back around to Civilization. So uh, make sure you to check back for that second part. Um, thank you so much for listening, and we want to thank, of course, everyone who uh, makes this possible. The Curb Center here at Vanderbilt, um, you know, shout out to Haystack and also to Visager for the use of their freely available song, The Plateau at Night, which you hear beneath my voice right now. Um, yeah, check back for part two, and we'll see you then. <laughs>